Welcome back to Roshcast, episode number 23. It was great bumping into quite a few listeners at Cord last week and hearing your feedback. Let's get this episode started with a rapid review. All right, I'll get us started with an OBGYN-related pharmacology rapid review. What's the preferred treatment regimen for cervicitis? Cervicitis is treated with ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams IM, and one gram of azithromycin PO. And what's the treatment for bacterial vaginosis? Bacterial vaginosis is treated with metronidazole twice daily for seven days. And the next one isn't infectious, but it still involves some pharmacology. What pharmacologic agent can be used to stop maternal hemorrhage after delivery? There are a few, but I think you're referring to oxytocin or the prostaglandins. Both are definitely correct, so I'll take it. Great warm-up. Why don't you load up the first question for us? Okay. A 16-year-old man presents to the ED complaining of three days of rhinorrhea, cough, myalgias, and malaise. After coughing yesterday, he developed pleuritic chest pain radiating to the left neck. His vital signs show a blood pressure of 130 over 70, heart rate of 76, respiratory rate of 16, temperature of 36.6 degrees Celsius, and pulse oximetry of 98% on room air. Chest x-ray shows air in the mediastinum. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, discharge home with close follow-up, B, endoscopy, C, needle decompression, or D, tube thoracostomy? So here we have a healthy teen with three days of URI symptoms with spontaneous pneumomediastinum. If I remember correctly, this requires no treatment, so the answer is probably choice A, discharge home with close follow-up. Exactly. Air in the mediastinum can come from one of two places, the GI tract or the respiratory tract. In the case of the respiratory tract, it commonly results from the rupture of alveoli, often after a strenuous valsalva maneuver. The air dissects along the peribronchovascular sheaths and then spreads throughout the mediastinal fascial planes. In some cases, the spread can be quite extensive, with air extending throughout the thorax, upper extremities, and even the neck. Oh, right, and that's where Heyman's sign comes from. You know, the often discussed, rarely observed crunching sound heard on auscultation of the mediastinum with each heartbeat? That's right, and Heyman's sign has an extremely low sensitivity, but it's still good to look for on physical. But back to this question, even if you weren't sure that spontaneous pneumomediastinum is a self-limited condition that's potentially dischargeable, you also could have come to this by the process of elimination. Choice B, endoscopy, that's used to evaluate for esophageal causes such as Borhoff syndrome, and this guy didn't vomit, so that's pretty unlikely. Choice C, needle decompression, that's saved for attention pneumothorax. And lastly, choice D, a tube thoracostomy, that's also the treatment for pneumothorax, not pneumomediastinum. And although this question gave us a chest x-ray with obvious pneumomediastinum, the gold standard diagnostic test is actually the CT scan. All right, so I've got the next question ready for you, and we're keeping with the mediastinal theme. A 17-year-old man with no past medical history presents complaining of constant chest pain for the last five days. He states that he had a cold two weeks ago and feels like he never got better. His vitals are a temperature of 36.8, a heart rate of 91, a blood pressure of 122 over 75, a respiratory rate of 18 with a SAT of 99%. His EKG shows ST elevations in leads 2, AVF, V2 through V6, with diffuse PR depressions without any reciprocal changes. What's the appropriate immediate management for this patient? Is it A, aspirin 325 milligrams and activation of the cardiac cath lab, B, azithromycin 500 milligrams by mouth, followed by 250 milligrams once a day for four days, C, ibuprofen and prompt follow-up with his primary care doctor, or D, serum D-dimer test? Diffuse ST elevations without reciprocal changes with PR depression following a URI, that's pericarditis for sure, which is treated with choice C, NSAIDs, and prompt follow-up with his PMD. 
Nailed it. This is definitely acute pericarditis. I think you got all the major clues. The young age with no cardiac history, the recent URI, the normal vitals, and the EKG findings. All these signs point to acute pericarditis. Some other clues to be on the lookout for that weren't mentioned are pleuritic chest pain radiating to the back and pain that decreases with leaning forward. And as you mentioned, the treatment is high-dose NSAIDs like ibuprofen, 400 to 800 milligrams three times a day for 7 to 14 days. But can you name two other treatment options that aren't as commonly used? Hmm, I don't actually remember. They're certainly less common, so I'll forgive you, but it's 2 to 4 grams of aspirin per day or indomethacin, 75 to 150 milligrams per day. So for pericarditis, we have high-dose ibuprofen, aspirin, or indomethacin. Those are all abortive therapies though, right? Are there any prophylactic medications also? Great question. Colchicine can actually be used to prevent recurrent episodes. It can also be used in the treatment of refractory pericarditis. And one last question for you before we move on. Can you name the most common cause of pericarditis? Again, I'm not 100% sure, but I'll go with viral causes. Not a bad guess, but idiopathic causes are actually the most common cause. Among the viral causes, Coxsackie virus is one of the most commonly implicated viruses. All right, let's get out of the media sinum for the next one. An 84-year-old woman with new-onset altered mental status is sent to the ED from her assisted living facility. According to the facility staff, she's had a productive cough for two days. Her vital signs show a blood pressure of 90 over 60, heart rate of 92, respiratory rate of 25, temperature of 38.3, and oxygen saturation of 95% on room air. Lab results reveal a white count of 11,000. A chest radiograph shows a right lower lobe infiltrate. Which aspect of this patient's presentation is consistent with Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, or SIRS? Is it A, blood pressure, B, the heart rate, C, the infiltrate on chest radiograph, or D, the white blood cell count? So this question is essentially asking about the definition of SIRS. I know that X-ray isn't part of it, so choice C is out. 11,000 sounds like a normal or at least close to normal white blood cell count, so that's out as well. I believe that BP is not part of the initial SIRS criteria, so I'll go with choice B, heart rate, even though it's only 92. That's right. SIRS is defined as having two or more of the following criteria. A heart rate greater than 90, a temperature over 38 Celsius or less than 36 Celsius, a respiratory rate over 20 or a PaCO2 less than 32, and lastly, a white count greater than 12,000 or less than 4,000. So building upon this, sepsis is therefore defined as SIRS plus a suspected or presumed source of infection. Sepsis plus a lactic acidosis or a systolic blood pressure less than 90 or a systolic blood pressure drop over 40 from normal with sides of organ dysfunction, hypotension, or hypoperfusion is severe sepsis. This leaves us with septic shock, which is defined as severe sepsis plus hypotension despite adequate fluid resuscitation. Why don't you give me one more question since this was basically a definition? Sure, here's another one. A 27-year-old woman presents with a complaint of transient vision loss in her right eye. She states that she has had multiple similar episodes in the past six months. She also complains of incomplete bladder emptying, intermittent tremors, and intermittent weakness in her left arm. The patient has a family history of multiple sclerosis. Which of the following is the best diagnostic test for the suspected diagnosis? Is it A, CSF testing for myelin basic protein, B, CT scan of the spine, C, MRI, or D, serum oligoclonal bands? Multiple episodes of transient vision loss in a young female, this is the classic description of MS. The phrasing of this question is a bit tricky, though, since it asks for the, quote, best diagnostic test. CT is definitely out. Choice D is tempting, but it refers to serum oligoclonal bands, not CSF oligoclonal bands, so that's out. 
So I'm left with a 50-50 shot of answers A and C. I'll go with choice C, MRI. You're absolutely right. The correct answer here is MRI. MRI is the diagnostic modality of choice for diagnosing MS. Remember that MRI can both rule out other causes of cord compression while also demonstrating the characteristic lesions of MS. Don't forget that MS is characterized by demyelination of axons within the CNS. Patients often present with symptoms that are scattered in time and space. The range of presenting symptoms varies widely from motor to sensory deficits to even bladder dysfunction. The spinal cord lesions typically involve the posterior columns, lateral spinothalamic tracts, and the corticospinal tract. Nice review, but why is an answer choice A, myelin basic protein, also right? Good question. CSF testing for myelin basic protein can be used to make the diagnosis of MS, but it's of questionable accuracy. You are also right that choice D, the oligoclonal bands, was a trick. CSF oligoclonal bands would be helpful, not serum oligoclonal bands. All right, so that's the diagnosis, but what about the treatment? Although this question didn't discuss treatment, the first-line treatment of an MS exacerbation would be high-dose methylprednisolone, followed by a prednisone taper. Steroids. Always the answer when in doubt. Even apparently for sepsis again, according to Paul Merrick's most recent studies, but that's neither here nor there. So let me quickly review some key MS associations. Think MS in a young Caucasian female, especially those with intermittent visual symptoms. Look out for optic neuritis and intranuclear ophthalmoplegia. It can be diagnosed by MRI. CSF studies may show increased IgG protein and a white blood cell pleocytosis. The first line of therapy is methylprednisolone. All right, you're up for this next one. Which of these symptoms is most suggestive of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome? Is it A, bilateral petechiae of the palate, B, ear pain, facial paralysis, hearing loss, C, lymphangitis with thrombus formation in the internal jugular vein, or D, photophobia and a unilateral thoracic vesicular rash? The answer here would be choice B, facial paralysis, ear pain, and hearing loss. These are all suggestive of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Exactly. Ramsey-Hunt is characterized by unilateral facial paralysis, a herpetiform vesicular eruption, and vestibulocochlear dysfunction, aka hearing loss. It's caused by herpes zoster infection. With respect to the eruption, it can occur in tons of places on the face, including the pinna, the external auditory canal, the tympanic membrane, the soft palate, the oral cavity, and basically anywhere on the face and neck, and even the shoulders. And although Ramsey-Hunt syndrome can resemble a Bell's palsy, it's often associated with severe pain, while Bell's palsy certainly is not. That's a good clue. And for one bonus question here, what's the treatment of Ramsey-Hunt? Ramsey-Hunt is treated with steroids and antivirals. Ah yes, steroids. And what's the complication of untreated Ramsey-Hunt? There are quite a few, and some are really awful. Complications include aseptic meningitis, peripheral motor neuropathy, myelitis, encephalitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, numerous stroke syndromes, and bacterial infection. Yep, all things you definitely want to avoid. Let's quickly discuss the other answer choices here, since they're all pretty high yield. Bilateral petechiae of the palate are associated with infectious mono and strep pharyngitis. Lymphangitis with thrombus formation in the internal jugular vein is characteristic of Lemire's syndrome. And lastly, choice D, photophobia and unilateral thoracic vesicular rash, that's characteristic of a herpes zoster infection, but not one of cranial nerve 7 and 8 as in Ramsey-Hunt syndrome. Wait, what's Lemire's syndrome again? Lemire's syndrome is a bacterial infection by the gram-negative anaerobic bacillus Fusobacterium necrophorum. As I just mentioned, it causes lymphangitis, which can lead to thrombus formation within the internal jugular vein. All right, you're up for the last one here. A father brings his two-week-old newborn to the ED after a gagging episode at home where the infant turned blue. 
The newborn was sleeping in his father's arms when he started choking, turned blue, and went limp. The father turned the baby over, did five back blows, and performed CPR for five minutes until the newborn started crying. On exam, the newborn appears sleepy, but is easily arousable. Vital signs are a heart rate of 160, respiratory rate of 30, temperature of 37.6 Celsius, and pulse ox is 99% on room air. Which of the following is the next best step in management? Is it A, admit to the hospital for further workup, B, endotracheal intubation, C, epinephrine IV, or D, send home with reassurance? So this is definitely a brewy, or a brief resolved unexplained event, which requires admission and a further workup. This is certainly a brewy, formerly known as an ALTI. For those who may not be as familiar, a brewy is an unexplained, frightening episode characterized by some combination of apnea, color change, muscle tone change, choking or gagging, and fear that the child has died. That's a pretty broad and actually kind of vague description, don't you think? That's true, but remember that a brewy is not a diagnosis, but a description of the event. It can be caused by a wide array of underlying pathology, including CNS infection, seizure, gastroesophageal reflux, intracranial hemorrhage, botulism, airway obstruction, electrolyte abnormality, and sepsis. Despite this exhaustive list, an etiology is only identified in 50% of cases. Management may differ from institution to institution, but an infant who requires resuscitation, as this guy did, definitely requires admission for further workup. Since the definition is so broad, are there any other criteria that can help us risk stratify infants with possible breweries? Yeah, there actually are. If an infant has all of the following characteristics, they're considered low risk for recurrence or serious underlying pathology. Age greater than 60 days, gestational age greater than 32 weeks, occurrence of only one brewery, duration of brewery less than one minute, no CPR, no concerning historical features, and no concerning physical exam findings. Although there are a ton of concerning historical features to be on the lookout for, a few important ones include social risk factors for child abuse, exposure to recent illnesses, and family history of brewery or sudden death. I think this would be another good answer to summarize before jumping to the rapid review. A brewery which was formerly an alti is a frightening event for an observer with one or more of the following features. Apnea, color change, muscle tone change, and choking or gagging. It commonly affects infants one to four months old. Although the most common cause is idiopathic, GERD and seizure disorders must be considered. Guidelines will differ from institution to institution, but most should be admitted, especially if they required resuscitation. That's a mouthful. Let's close this out with a rapid review. Pneumomediastinum requires no treatment and patients may be safely discharged. Pneumomediastinum often results from ruptured alveoli, commonly after a strenuous valsalva maneuver. It can also be caused by Borhave syndrome. Hamensign refers to the crunching sound heard in oscillation of the mediastinum in patients with pneumomediastinum. Pericarditis can be seen on EKG with diffuse ST elevations without reciprocal changes along with diffuse PR depression. It often follows a URI. First-line treatment for pericarditis is high-dose ibuprofen. Alternatively, high-dose aspirin or indomethacin may be used. Colchicine can be used in refractory cases or for prophylaxis. The SIRS criteria are a heart rate greater than 90, a temperature over 38 or less than 36, a respiratory rate over 20 or a PaCO2 less than 32, or lastly, a white blood cell count greater than 12 or less than 4,000. MS classically presents with symptoms that are scattered in time and space. They can range from motor to sensory or even bladder dysfunction. MS is most commonly diagnosed on MRI, although CSF oligoclonal bands may be helpful. It's treated with high-dose methylprednisolone followed by a prednisone taper. 
Ramsey-Hunt syndrome is characterized by a triad of a unilateral facial paralysis, herpetiform vesicular eruptions, and a vestibular cochlear dysfunction. It's caused by a herpes zoster infection and is treated with steroids and antivirals. The gram-negative anaerobic bacillus fusobacterium necroforum causes Lemire syndrome. Lemire syndrome is a lymphangitis which can lead to thrombus formation within the internal jugular vein. A brewery, which was formerly known as an alti, is an unexplained frightening episode characterized by apnea, color change, muscle tone change, choking, or gagging, and the fear that the child has died. Most children require admission, although an etiology will only be found in 50% of cases. So that wraps up episode 23. Nachi and I will both be at SAM, so feel free to stop us and let us know what you think about the podcast. We're always down for some in-person feedback. As always, head on over to the blog for some great images in the show notes, and don't forget to check out the other free educational material at rawshreview.com. Hope to see some of you in Orlando.